What's up with all these socks everywhere? It's for Founders Day, the reason why we're here. A sock? When Cicely and Rosalind drove up from Montana, Rosalind lost one of her socks, and she hated wearing socks that didn't match. So she stopped here and bought a new pair. So you're telling me this entire town was founded because of a sock? That's a story. You want one? <sighs> yeah, sure, whatever. We're back in Sicily, and it's another Founders Day. I feel like this is like the third Founders Day that we've experienced in this series. Maybe more. I don't. I don't know. But of course, you're familiar with Founders Day, right, Charles? Ah, uh, vaguely. Hang on. What, what were the other two occasions with Founders Day? So I remember there was one episode where Chris is talking about um, preparing a speech for Founders Day, and I feel like we get a lot of. Uh, explanation of the lore for the like the founders and stuff in that episode that is not the same episode as Sicily because I'm thinking of a different episode obviously the episode Sicily we get this sort of backstory and it's been a while um but I'm pretty sure that the sock thing happens in that episode like I don't think they just made it up for this episode I think I know that they're like stopping through and something happens that makes them stop by the town and they end up, you know, having a huge effect there and it's founded and they, you know, by the end of the episode, you know, this is how, this is the history of Sicily, I guess. But maybe there are more references to the, to the founders. I don't remember the socks at all. (laughs) Are you sure that was a reference in the other episode? Okay. I, I knew when I was preparing for this episode, I should probably rewatch. Let me just go into the, Go into the archives. Let me watch this episode, Sicily, and I'll, I'll report back right now uh, if there is a sock. Uh, yeah, I don't really see anything about a sock in this episode, Sicily. Like, you know, the, Sicily and Rosalind, they roll into town in the Model T, and as soon as they step out, I think Rosalind tells Sicily, like, watch, you're going to get your skirt muddy because the ground is muddy. Yeah, there's not really... Did they just add this bit of lore? Was that... If anyone listening, please help us. We, we're supposed to be experts on this, but this sock thing just threw me for a loop. Yeah, I'm positive they just added that in at the end. Like, it's just a little <laughs> thing they wanted to add in at the last... Oh, gosh. Well, How many episodes do we have? Eight? Yeah, we have eight left. Uh, this eight is, left. Yes. Episode 16 of season six. I do want to talk more about this sock, but we should probably... Um, you know, dive into the to the podcast here. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we overanalyze the series Northern Exposure. My name is Lee. Uh, Northern Exposure is one of my favorite shows of all time. I've seen the series uh, countless times. Season six, however, I had only seen once before. Like I never would rewatch that one. Charles, uh, this is your first time watching every episode. That's right. I'm watching it off with fresh eyes for the first time. But unfortunately. Sadly, really coming close to the end right here. I'm no longer going to be able to say that. Yeah, it's um, we're getting in the final stretch. This is the last eight episodes, as you already mentioned. And when we left off before, we lost our, our main character. We can call him the main character, Joel Fleischman. Uh, he's definitely not mentioned in this episode, which I thought was interesting. I remember us talking about it, Charles, before we bro- uh, took our break. Like, are they going to keep talking about Fleischman? Is he still going to be doing things like off camera in the universe or is he just kind of gone from the show? And I feel like it's going to be the latter, though I'd be interested to see. I can't really remember 
what happens in this final stretch here. Like maybe we'll get some info on Fleischman throughout, uh, but I'm not holding out hope. Yeah, it's a sad state of affairs right now when we're looking at a post Fleischman Sicily right here. And I don't know. I don't know if this episode is like, you know, really doing it in any favors. I, I think I'll straight up say that while this episode isn't the the worst one of the season, I don't think it is spectacular at setting up Phil and Michelle's not introduction, but like their their simulation into Sicily 2.0. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do like these characters. I think I've said uh Maybe on my first watch, I was kind of ambivalent towards them. I, I dig them uh, on this rewatch. I really like uh, Phil and Michelle. You know, it kind of feels like we're hitting some of the same notes about their uh, anxieties being here. Um, so we're just going to keep underlying that. That's going to be their, like, defining quality, I guess. And, you know, we'll see. We got a few more episodes. What can develop with them? It just feels like we're kind of hitting some of the same notes as, like, those earlier episodes when they're introduced in season six. But I am excited to talk about this episode. I'll agree, Charles. It's not the worst episode in season six that I've seen so far. Um, I'm just kind of uncertain where it goes from here. Right. You know, I don't know why we didn't talk about this more. Maybe because we were so focused on Joel Fleshman and his departure from Northern Exposure. But, you know, we're left with eight episodes where we're trying to develop these characters, uh, Phil and Michelle. Whereas we've had six seasons with Maggie Halling, Maurice, Ed, Bruthan, you know, the gang. We've had yeah. so many seasons <laughs> to flush them out. And now we're left with eight episodes being like, well, let's see how much mileage we can get out of them and come to a graceful exit out of Northern Exposure as an entirety. And it's it's so risky for them to have done this. <laughs> like looking, yeah. yeah, re-examining this again. It's like uh, because we're, we're, it just feels like when I was watching this episode and they were retreading that ground of being like, I hate being here. I don't like, I don't accept Sicily. It's like we're in season six. It's a little bit too late to be exploring this territory again. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot um, maybe of, I don't know if you would say inconsistencies with Michelle and Phil. I, I wouldn't say that. It's just kind of like, Back and forth, it feels like. Like some episodes, it feels well, like they resolve they resolve this anxiety, and then other episodes that dig in deeper. Sorry, right? Go ahead. It's I, not. I, I see you had it, a thought. It, uh, no, 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 no. It's okay. It's not even like their character's fault. Yeah, it's like the Bible, the show Bible. It's their fault for being put into this predicament. So it's the way they're kind of handling the the show Bible and like the status quo of these characters. Um, but we're gonna have a lot to talk about them. In this episode, let's just dive in with the credits here. Again, it's the 16th episode of season six. It's called Lucky People. Uh, right off the bat, what does that mean? Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just a big dum-dum, but I, I have no idea why it's titled that. Is this a song reference? I tried to look that up too. I was like, this maybe that's what it is. Because that's the one that usually slips my mind if I don't know the song. And then I'm like, oh, this was a popular song in the 90s. There is... Um, yeah, there's not there's not a whole lot that I mean there's things that came up when I searched lucky people song or lucky people lyrics or lucky people music band 90s, you know, all that together. There are some things but um nothing that really stuck out. Maybe if it was like a flash in the pan thing where it was like really popular at the time, 
but now it's kind of hard to remember that. I don't really see what the title could mean with this episode. There's a lot of um, sort of gift giving in this episode in a couple of the different plot lines that happens in at least two of the plot lines. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm still a little in the dark on that title. As we talk about the episode, maybe we'll come on to uh, some sort of idea here. Let's just keep going through here. The director, Janet Greek, uh, I had to go back and, and look it up because there, there aren't very many female directors of Northern Exposure. She is uh, the fourth uh, female director of four female directors who, who um, directed episodes of Northern Exposure. I believe one of them, Lorraine Senna, directed two episodes. So five episodes in total directed by women. Janet Greek was one of these directors. She's known for working on Babylon 5, says IMDb and Wikipedia. Uh, she also, she directed Weird Al Yankovic's first music video for a song mm. called Ricky. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, and she also worked on Saint Elsewhere and Going to Extremes, which are both uh, Brandon Falsey, you know, created series. Charles, I, I, I uh, shared it with you recently, but... There is a full episode of Going to Extremes on YouTube. I haven't watched it yet, but if you're listening to this at the time of release, hopefully it's still up there. Maybe that's a Patreon in the future, but I'm just, I've been very curious about that show. I don't think, I don't even know if it ever got like a DVD release or anything. Um, Moving on, the writers are Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, classic core writers for this series. Uh, Finally, the air date was February 15th, 1995. That's the day after Valentine's Day. And I would say that this episode has a little Valentine's Day tinge. You know, this is maybe not the first episode to investigate the Maggie-Chris um, chemistry, you know, you could call it. Uh, but it, but it's definitely one of those. Like, that's a big part. It feels like after this episode, uh, Charles, I think maybe you've had it spoiled for you or you kind of guessed it already that Maggie and Chris, they begin to form a relationship and it's happening here in this episode. Yeah, you can definitely tell that this is the beginning of the relationship right here. Still, uh, I don't know, man. I just don't feel comfortable with it. Not with just, you can't do this. Not with just eight episodes left. It's, uh, yeah, not with just this. <laughs> can't do it it's like this, man. To, too close to the end. I'm like... I'm just going with it for now. Like I, yeah, I, I don't, really don't think it. I don't think it really works well, especially coming after those. There's like an episode that we watched um, earlier in the season where Chris kind of fetishizes Maggie. Like he becomes obsessed with her as a sort of a dominant. Um, what do you call that? Just like a woman in charge, and that's his. Uh, that's his kink in one of the episodes, and he goes to some uh, pretty strange lengths to um, that sort of, he sort of creeps on her, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I don't want to be too negative about this. And like, I understand that season six is like the black sheep and everyone talks about how (laughs) different it is from the other five seasons, but it would be remiss of me to be like, Oh no, everything's going fine. Everything's going like absolutely okay in the universe of Sicily, Alaska. But I'm going to try to remain positive. I'm going to try to, Try to stick to the things that I think that this episode did very well on. No, yeah. I mean, like, we're we're going to be uh, as objective as we can be. Uh, but I think, you know, most fans of the show would agree. It's like, 
Most fans of the show would probably say stop watching at this point, but we can't do that, Charles. We have to cover all of the episodes. We're going to do it all the way through the end. And yeah, like we already said, this is not the worst episode in the season. Let's dive into it. Normally we do, um, we separate the episode by its like core, you know, three plot lines that it has. And the plot lines in this episode are between Phil and Michelle and uh, this new parcel of land that they've bought, their landowners. Um, There's also a storyline, as we mentioned, with Maggie and Chris, sort of a budding romance, rebuilding an old uh, Model T car. That's a pretty small uh, plot line, I would say. And then I think the final plot line is with Maurice, his relationship to Shelly and Holling's daughter, Miranda. Um, I think that's all that happens in this episode. Did I miss anything? No, that's basically it. Well, do you want to start in the first scene or do you want to find a specific plot line to, to look into first? Uh, we could start on the first scene. I don't have a problem with that. All right. So as I mentioned, Phil and Michelle are landowners. We open up on the two of them standing in, um, what I would describe as just like an off grid plot of land. Uh, it's snowy. That's, we don't see any ground. We just see snow. We see some trees. There's nothing around them. It's not particularly like wide expanse, like wide angle shots. They're just, you know, they're just kind of like in the middle of, I wouldn't even say the woods, just like a plot of land. We learned that there's no road access really um, because uh, Phil or Michelle are like, oh, let me run back to the car and get the, my like picnic basket. And they take a few paces and look around and they're like, wait, where, where did I park the car? Like they're kind of, there's, there's no, they had to get out of the car and start walking, I guess, to, to come out to this plot of land. Right. And I do like the opening of this. It's, um, you have the camera rotating a little bit, trying to capture yeah. all the scenery that's around them. And there are moments in this episode where it takes place outside at this wintry landscape. And mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of it. I think it looks great. Yeah. It, it's Pretty rare that Northern Exposure actually plays into the environment itself. It has happened before. I'm not saying it hasn't, sure. but yeah. particularly in this one, it was such a main factor into it, predominantly because it probably wants to play into Michelle and her being cold. Yeah. And I think that's why they Makes have sense. a little bit of a focus on the environment right there. But yeah, like you said, this is the one where they kind of get lost. And I want to say they're trying to set up for Phil's thing, but kind of hard to say. Oh, Phil's uh, plot in this episode is he becomes, he gets some anxiety from being out in nature, which, yeah, I don't know if that's really happening yet, but there's like another scene with um, Maggie and Phil out there, like in the same location. And that's where we sort of see that sort of anxiety. Um, Do you want to just keep going along this plot line? Yeah, we can. So I guess they do find their car. Like, you know, (laughs) that opening gambit is them like, wait, where did we park the car? And then it Cuts to the title music. Well, the next time we see Phil, he's back at the office. So they they made it back to Sicily somehow. Um, and he's there with Marilyn, sort of in the lobby. And he has that opening soundbite that we played, asking about the sock. And uh, we realized that this... So this, unless we're wrong, and listener, if you, if you remember, please let us know the canon here if the sock does play into the episode Sicily or other episodes where they mention the Founders or Founders Day, um, if we're to believe that this is a new addition to the lore in this episode, then I think that brings a lot more importance to the sock. 
right? At first I was just like, oh, they brought up the sock because that's actually what happened in the episode Sicily. But I mean, I, I couldn't find that scene just a moment ago. So what is it about the sock in this episode? Why is it important? I mean, there's there's clothing a lot, and clothing is a is a large part of this episode. Gifts, clothing as gifts. Uh, my theory is that a sock is probably one of the first things that you put on a baby. You know, like baby socks. Mm, yeah. So I was thinking along in that realm. I was like, well, maybe they're just talking about starting from anew. Like this is exactly where it starts from. That one little sock, and then you take your first steps with it, and boom, you're on your way. Yeah, the socks that we do see as decoration in this episode are usually pretty small. And I think uh, hauling in a lot of the scenes in this episode, he has like a little baby sock pinned to his shirt as just like a little flare for the holiday. So I definitely see that image of like baby socks starting fresh. Founder's Day recognizes the beginning, you know, of Sicily. So um, yeah, it's a lot of new starts. And with uh, Phil and Michelle, they're... They're newly minted landowners. So that's a new start for them too. And I, I kind of like where that goes. We'll keep talking about it in this plot line because, uh, yeah, I, I like that metaphor of the sock as like a new start. I think it fits well with what we're going to talk about here with Phil and Michelle. The next scene with them, they're back at their house and uh, they realized they probably aren't going to be able to afford the house, or at least they're not going to afford to be able to build the house the way they originally wanted. Um, they just don't really have the money. I think there's like, uh, there's like, um, what was it? It's like when they, when he dissolved his partnership, his medical partnership, there is like legal fees. There's a lot of different things that they didn't account for with the cost of the land. They're, they're not totally sure they can even really get the loan, you know, basically to summarize, they may not be able to afford the house that they dreamed of. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that the dissolve of the medical partnership had fees attached to it as well, which says that even when you want to end something, it comes at a cost. Uh, we're going to talk about this plot line down the road, but I think it's important to note that in the scene with Maurice, with Holling and Shelley, yeah. he has that note of saying, build it up, knock it down, build it up, knock it down. Ooh. and. I thought that that was going to be a predominant theme that's happening throughout this episode. Uh, the idea of building things and then coming away from them, which is kind of related to what's going on with Phil and Michelle in this episode. So in this dialogue, we're getting the sense that like, even though he wanted to step away from Los Angeles, it, it still had a price. Yeah. It still came at a cost to us and it's affecting our new beginning right here. So already they're putting the back foot of trying to build it up again. And you know, we kind of get that idea in some sense in the very next scene that follows after this, which is that they hear a sound outside and it turns out that a moose mistook their car for another moose and tried to mount it and, you know, damaged the car and set them back probably a pretty penny. And I was thinking that, you know, that's kind of like building a new. Uh, it's having to repair your car, you mean? No, you know, like the act of, you know, Oh, copulation <laughs> yeah. with the car. <laughs> yeah, it's trying to have uh, more little baby moose. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is such a funny scene because it's like the car alarm starts going off and Phil and Michelle rush outside and the car is just destroyed. They're like, wait, what happened? Walt is running up to the scene and he says, I just saw a bull moose come through this way. 
And like, that's probably what happened. It tried to mount your car. Walt says that the, um, the scent of the Japanese radial tires mimics uh, the moose's natural pheromones. Something about the rubber of these Japanese specifically tires. Um, maybe it's like certain rubbers mimic this pheromone. Um, because it's like, they mentioned it's not even in season, but the moose uh, just decided to wreck the car, trying to copulate with uh, the Capra's cars. And Walt says, don't you worry, I'm going to go hunt down that moose and you can even keep the rack, you know? That never happens in the episode. I thought that would be pretty funny, though, if we got an episode with yeah. Walt, like a, a plot line where Walt is hunting a moose just solo. I thought that would be great. Um, save it for the deleted scenes, I guess. Um, but yeah, so you're right. They get another setback with the destroyed car. I don't know how they're going to afford this house. Um, we can, I guess this is a, actually a separate plot. I mean, there's it all a lot comes going together on with, at the end. Yeah. It, it all it's comes like, together. There's a lot going on with Phil and Michelle because there's the house. But then as we mentioned, Phil has a certain anxiety about nature, which we'll get to. But the very next scene is Michelle is home alone. And she has her own little thing going on because she finds a cardboard box out on the porch. And it's like, um, there's some black Sharpie writing on it that says Mrs. Capra. She brings the box inside and opens it up. And there's this parka, some boots, and there's a handwritten note that says, you seem cold, uh, ellipses. Thought you could use these. And that's it. That's pretty much the scene. I think she might have um, a reaction, though I can't recall if it was positive or negative confused. Um, not too sure, but we definitely hear about her feelings, um, about this gift later in the episode. Uh, do you have anything to say about that scene or do you want me to move to the next one? Uh, no, we can move to the next one. I think this is a pretty relatively small scene other than the thought that I, it wasn't going to happen, but I thought I was like, is this like a serial killer? Just <laughs> like, are we going to move in this direction? I was like, there's no way. <laughs> yeah. This it's very mysterious. It's like sort of like a secret admirer, a stalker. We don't know. Um, anyway, the next scene is with Phil and Maggie. Phil takes Maggie out to look at the land, um, because he wants to sell some of it so that they can afford their house. If they can sell like seven or eight acres, then they might get the funds that they need to build the house the way they want to build it. Um, Maggie looking around seems pretty unimpressed, uh, with this ideal, um, Phil is holding it to a pretty high standard. But Maggie points out, you're like, you're out in the middle of nowhere, no decent road. There's no, it's not on the grid. You know, there's no power. Phil says people in LA would kill for this. Like we could put an ad in the Hollywood Reporter, like people, you know, people who live in Sicily, like, you know, sure they, they don't live uh, in a bustling city, but they also, you know, they, they live close enough to a grocery store, you know, feed store, the brick if they want to, like people don't. Not not everyone wants to just like live out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, Maggie says she's going to try, maybe, I guess, to put an ad out. We'll see what happens. Yeah, you know, he's actually not too wrong, in my opinion, especially in the year of 2023. Yeah. Uh, what Phil was saying about people in Los Angeles would kill for this. And what I yeah. took this to mean is that like rich people from Los Angeles would kill from this because – one of the curious things that's happening now is the population of these rural-esque areas or whole states. So the reason I bring this up is because one of the things I was reading the other day is how popular 
Idaho is becoming. Like of all those states out there, <laughs> Idaho wow. is bumping and it's bumping from rich people. <laughs> rich people are like, oh, you know, there isn't a whole lot of people here. I can shape the town to my design, basically. I can kinda build like whatever Maurice. I want. <laughs> yeah. And like they're kind of doing that on like uh, Arkansas, parts of Mississippi, North Carolina. They're finding these areas that just haven't really been on the map and just repopulating them with, you know, their enormous wealth. And I think to myself, like, <laughs> if Sicily, Alaska was a real place, it would, oh my gosh, number one place for rich people to go to. Like, <laughs> so many would try to repopulate that. Well, Rosalind is a, is a real place. And, I you know, I guess it definitely has changed since they were, you know, shooting the show back in the 90s. So I wonder what it looked like, you know, how, how it, how much it differed. Um, and Charles, you kind of talked about this before. Like if they made a reboot of Northern Exposure, it should be about a bunch of like rich or like young people, you know, big city oh, people yeah. coming to move and like gentrify the area or whatever. Yeah. And it would play at odds against the people that have been in Sicily for, you know, their entire lives and stuff like that. I still think that's a really good pilot. Just call me. Uh, CBS or whoever the holding company is yeah. for this. <laughs> universal, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it would be universal. Uh, you, I know you guys are like, yeah, the uh, we're we're taping this right now. Uh, after the writer strike. So yes, we, we can start writing, Charles. Strike. I mean, we're not- They can contact me. They can, like, <laughs> they're not breaking any- <laughs> They're not breaking any rules. Uh, well, this is the scene also where Phil begins to display his uh, his anxiety of nature. He's sitting there. Um, I guess he thought this conversation with Maggie would go a certain way, and it's it's going the other way. You know, it's not looking good. I don't think he's going to really make much money off of this land if he tries to sell it. Uh, he looks out across his land, and he starts having these crazy, like, tree hallucinations, like the camera's doing some really goofy stuff, like zooming in, twirling, uh, it's like blurring and just, it's, it's really going out there. He ends the scene by, uh, he can still speak, but he's like, I can't move. Like he's frozen stiff. He also says like, he can't, it's hard for him to breathe. He's having a panic attack here and Maggie has to kind of like pull him out of it. Right. And once again, Northern Exposure, maybe a little bit ahead of its time. Yeah. Because uh, panic attacks, they are all the rage in movies now. <laughs> really? You ever see, like, you uh, yeah, what? You never saw, uh, <laughs> maybe it's like the, the sphere of people that I, I traverse in, but like uh, the Puss in Boots movie, which is, it sounds hilarious <laughs> to say without context, but like animation wise, like that was like a really fantastic one. Like it did a lot to put in inroads to like how people in that industry should approach hmm. the topics that are being discussed and also of the art form itself. But yeah, Puss in Boots had a panic attack scene in that. And I like okay. was the big selling point on that film. So now it's become sort of like a meme because not like a lot of films have panic attacks in them. <laughs> I want to see the, the scenes. I mean, I guess I could watch, do I have to watch the whole movie? I, I would. I just want to understand these memes. Uh, you definitely don't have to watch all puts and boots. Like, <laughs> I want to get the memes. I'll, I'll, I'm going to look into this. That's great. Um, all right, let's move on. So, um, I guess they're back at home maybe. Yeah. Cause, uh, we realized this is after commercial break. Um, Maggie gets Phil back home. He says it was an anxiety attack. 
Uh, Michelle is trying, you know, giving him some water, sitting him down, laying him down. Um, this is more of a scene about Michelle, though, because after she puts him down in the bed, she rushes to um, to say goodbye to Maggie. And she asks Maggie, are you the person who gave me the parka and boots? Maggie says no, uh, but they look really comfy or they look uh, really warm or something like that. Uh, so suspect, uh, Maggie's no longer a suspect for the serial killer. <laughs> um, actually this is in the same scene, right? Uh, where, where Phil is talking about, um, naturophobia, something that he, 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 um, diagnoses himself. Yeah. He says that it's not agoraphobia, but rather it's nature phobia, fear of nature itself. Cause he feels that the entire ecosystem is just trying to get at him and, Michelle thinks that, you know, maybe this is just one of those things that you'll just eventually grow over it because this didn't happen whenever we were out skiing or all the other numerous times that you were out there in nature. So it's kind of odd that those pop up now, which I get like what they're trying to say now is that like this is sort of the uh, mental representation of what Phil is imagining what Sicily is like, like the entirety of Sicily is rejecting Phil. So therefore it manifests mm. itself into the trees and the mountains and all that. I, I get that. And I, I guess I'll just I'll talk about my complaints about it once we get to the end of this plot line. Interesting. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. I initially was like, okay, this is like some sort of stress induced by finances. You know, he's not, he's, he's afraid that he just wasted all of this money on land that, he can't even really use because he can't build the house that he wants and it's attacking him. But I do like what you're saying, building in the angle that, because, you know, it's not just uh, an anxiety about nature. It's about not fitting into Sicily, I think, is a big problem that evolves throughout this episode. Phil himself and Michelle feeling like they aren't fitting in with Sicily, which, you know, that's just... uh, (laughs) It's uh, happened before with Joel and it's happened before even with Phil and Michelle. They've had these these feelings. Yeah. And, you know, that's what they touch upon on Michelle's whole thing with the parka and the shoes because she says, you know, it doesn't come from a place of goodness. It comes from a place of saying, I don't like what you wear. I want you to dress like the rest of us. So, yeah, two similar ideas right now happening with Michelle and Phil. The idea of alienation from the town. Yeah, she's talking about anonymous gifts. Anonymous suggestions are hostile. That's her point of view here. And there's some other uh, differing points of view that we hear throughout the episode. But in this scene, we get to chew on the idea of the hostility of this gesture of giving this gift. Um, I like what you said. It's like, you you don't fit in here. I want you to, uh, she has a quote, I don't like what you wear. I want you to dress like the rest of us. Yeah, I, I kind of like that. It, it's interesting because from what we've seen, it, it kind of seems that Michelle hasn't really given much thought or comment until now about this gift. But as she's speaking it out, she realizes that it makes her very uncomfortable. She doesn't like it. Um, so that, that'll continue to develop. Uh, let's see. So the next scene we see is, I want to say it's with Phil coming into Maurice's office at K-Bear. And Maurice says, oh, I got this little bit of history for you, Phil. Like he dug up some sort of a record that this um, this man named Claiborne, a representative from New Mexico, uh, was fishing up in the area. In fact, it was on the piece of land that Maurice sold Phil. We, we learned that. I don't think we learned that before this scene, but, you know, Phil bought this land from Maurice. Um, 
This representative Claiborne was fishing up there about a decade ago and was caught in an avalanche. It took two days for search and rescue to get him out. And uh, I mean, he survived the avalanche, but he died on the way to the hospital. So again, just like dark omens to fill about nature, specifically about his land is like, is that cursed? Like, it just doesn't sound good. But Phil is has already made up his mind. He's arrived here because he wants Maurice to buy the land back. And he's like, you know, Maurice, you can tack on an extra cost for your trouble, but uh, I just, I just want to get rid of this land. And I think it's really interesting because you brought it up earlier where Maurice is talking about build it up and knock it down. And the cost of... Um, the cost of like finishing one thing and starting something new, you know. Um, I like what Maurice says in this scene about um, about the opportunities available to Phil and how if Maurice bought back this land, it would be uh, a large disservice to Phil. I have the soundbite, so I'll play this little clip of uh, Maurice's thoughts here. Phil... It'd be the easiest thing in the world for me to return your money and take back that land. Good, good. But it'd be a disservice to you. No, 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 it wouldn't. You know, you remind me of myself when I first came up here. I went out and bought my first 800 acres. I leveraged myself to the max. Don't think I didn't feel some panic every once in a while, but it worked out fine for me, didn't it? Now, if I allowed you to crawl out of this deal, sometime, somewhere, you'd wonder if you could have made it yourself. I think it's good advice for Maurice. I mean, financially, I'm sure Maurice wants uh, Phil and Michelle to be happy because Phil's their new doctor. They want to keep him in town. So Maurice isn't going to let it like spiral out of control. But just as life advice about like, you know, you can't be afraid of the risk. You know, I think what Maurice is prescribing here is he sees... Phil is very afraid of this um, this purchase of land that he just made, this huge expense. He's afraid that he spent all this money on this land. But, um, you know, he, he, he just needs to get moving on the next step. You know, it's going to be tricky. Oh, you know, there's, it was mentioned earlier in the episode where Michelle was like, you know, we could, we could start small with the house and always add on. Like, that's an option, too. It doesn't have to be the house that they dreamed at the start. It's going to be, um, it's not going to be easy. You can't be afraid of the challenges. Um, this this particular scenario, you know, I don't, I don't know how I would weigh it, but just the advice that Maurice gives of, like, you know, don't be afraid of this risk and this challenge in, in any situation is, I think, good advice. Yeah, going back to the build it up, knock it down theme right there. Trying to begin the new in Sicily for Phil. And bringing us to the next scene with Michelle now, who goes into the brick and asks Ruthann if she was the one who gave her the coat and the boots. And Ruthann says basically the same thing as Mackie, where she says, I wasn't the one, but I think that they look comfy. And I think the person who did it was looking out for your well-being. <laughs> and Michelle, you know, obviously doesn't take too well to that. Well, actually... Uh, Michelle begins the conversation by saying, isn't that like a little sneaky, this gift? Oh, and, um, right. Ruthann says, I don't think you should assume that. I know a lot of people who do nice things anonymously. They just don't want to be thanked because it makes them uncomfortable. And uh, Michelle actually is like, okay, like she feels better about it or seemingly she feels better about it. 
because she's like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I just, uh, maybe I do have the wrong perspective. Maybe you're right. Maybe there are people out there who just want to be nice. And maybe I should uh, embrace that because it <laughs> stresses me less than uh, thinking of, you know, feeling like I am unwanted here. But uh, do you do you remember what happens right after this? Like as Michelle is trying to leave? Yeah, she gets stopped by Holling, who thinks that she left her hat behind. He mistakes her for Bernice. And, well, it turns out that Bernice is like Michelle, except only like 50 <laughs> years older. She's got like gray hair. <laughs> She's got uh, a little bit less teeth. Obviously looks just, you know, an ordinary Wrinkles. old person. Yeah, I mean, it's normal to look that way whenever you're old. And uh, Michelle probably... It's like a little... No, yeah, it's a, it's a little ghastly looking. Uh, it's it's um, Terry Polo just in like old age makeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reasoning is because when Michelle is like, you know what, Ruthann, maybe you're right. You know, she puts the parka on, she begins to leave. And from behind, Hauling sees uh, Michelle from behind. He doesn't see, you know, he just sees the parka. That's why he confuses her for Bernice Crandall. When we turn and get a look at Bernice, she's also wearing a similar parka. Mm. I mean, she looks very much like Terry Polo because it's the same actress, just with like old age makeup. <laughs> but now it's like, you know, now maybe there's a fear of fitting in too much. Like, is this what's going to become of me if I embrace Sicily? Like if I join the club I'm going to become this old witch or something. (laughs) That's really interesting. I took it to mean the opposite way of like, oh, Holly can even recognize me. Like I'm still alienated Ah, from the population. Yeah. That's good too. It's like, yeah, I I don't even, I don't, yeah. Like I'm, I, it's interesting because it's like, if you stand out too much, then people are going to be like, wear this uh, parka. Like that's her fear. It's like that people want her to fit in more. But now- She's, if she fits in too much, that's also um, that's also a fear. Like she can't be herself. This also ties right, in right. with uh, some of her thoughts at the end of the episode about individualism, being yourself, finding your own fashion. Can't wait till we get there. Yeah, this is making sense. I like that. Um, so I think uh, the next scene, Michelle is trying to get rid of these clothes. She's there with Phil and he's talking about um, that old saying uh, oh God, give me the serenity to accept what cannot be changed and the courage to change what can be changed and the wisdom to know the difference. Acceptance, that's what's important. Uh, Phil is like, maybe I'll just have to accept that Maurice is not going to take his land back. That's such a good quote. Even though it's like, I know that he says that it's written on greeting cards a lot and that right, absolutely okay. is true. Like it's trite because it's said so much. But I don't mm-hmm. think that just because it's trite, it doesn't mean that it's not necessarily true. I think that, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe it's just me because, like, I grew more emotional when I became older. But I think that, like, when you hear that as a teenager, you kind of just laugh it off or you just don't understand the full ramifications of what that quote means. And then you get older and you have more life experience underneath your belt. You realize, like, oh, wait, hang on. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of truth. In fact, like, it's, like, all the truth in that short trite statement right there yeah i mean sometimes some of those problems in the world it's it's just not worth your time or effort you you need to understand what's important to you what needs to be changed some things uh they just don't matter as much you know or you know you, you can't let them you have to have the wisdom you know <laughs> to uh to know what's important for you and for phil he says he's just gonna accept it's kind of like uh maybe less of a uh what's the word i'm looking for 
maybe less of an active role here. He's kind of being passive, just being like, I guess I just got to accept that Maurice is not going to take his land back. Mm -hmm. And while this is happening, Michelle is on her own rant with these clothes. She wants to give them back. She drops another, uh, you know, one of those aphorisms. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So she's back at it again. Ruthann had one opinion, but she's back on her old, on her old kick. Um, Michelle is, you know, thinking that uh, maybe it was a nice gesture from someone to gift her these clothes, but uh, it's taken the wrong way. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not helping her out. And this is where it kind of confuses me on where they're trying to go with on this plot line because mm -hmm. the very next scene we just came from a scene where Phil says that he has grown to accept this conclusion. He is. Yeah. It's a yeah. Like. <sighs> He, this is how things are going to be in the town of Sicily. And then he goes to the brick and he talks to Eugene and he gives him like a little, it's like a parable, like almost. He tells him like, hey, every day in between patients, I would go get a mango apricot smoothie to treat myself for the work that I've done. And I think that that's like what I need right now. Eugene. Can you make me a mango apricot smoothie? And Eugene is, of course, like, no, of course not. Like, I don't have the ingredients on hand. And to Phil, that is not the answer because he freaks out and he says, I hate this place. I hate this place. And he yeah. leaves the brick. And there's no scene between this and what just happened beforehand. I could reasonably come to the conclusion that something else has ruined his day between now and then. And that's what's led him into the brick yeah. in such a mood. We just but they don't, don't, we don't, they don't see ever it, show yeah. it. There is a deleted scene. Uh, I don't think it's going to help this scene much, but I can talk about it now. There's one deleted scene with uh, Michelle and Phil going into the brick. And Michelle's like, do you want to sit by the window? And Phil is not really interested in that. I guess this is playing off of he's like, you know, as far away as I can get from a view of nature, you know, like keep me indoors. Um, also they bump into Eugene here and Michelle asks if Eugene gave her the clothes and he says, no, one of them, maybe, I don't know if it was Phil or Michelle or both start complaining about running into the same people again and again, like living in a small town just means you're going to keep running into the same people over and over again. And he brings up the play, no exit by Sartre. And he says, uh, turns out the three people in that play, they're in hell. So <laughs> he's equating, living in a small town, living in rural area, living in Sicily, uh, equating that to being in hell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so th that, that's another, I can see why they cut that. It's just, you know, the same flavor again and again. It, it's not the scene that you were talking about that we're missing. Maybe if something happening to, to shift Phil from acceptance to uh, hating Sicily because there's no mango apricot shakes here. Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty powerful outburst. What happens after that? Oh, we get that short little scene where they're outside again. And I, I think the scene where he looks beautiful, but they're outside. It's with Michelle and Ruth Ann, and they're trying to set up the booths for Founder's Day. And Michelle's just wearing her regular clothes because she's already banished the parka and the boots to the Shadow Realm. And <laughs> she is getting frostbite, according to Ruth Ann. <laughs> Uh, and Michelle tries to play it off and says like, oh no, I'll acclimate. It'll be okay. I'll steadily get used to this. But no, she actually does get frostbite because the very next scene is of her in the cabin with Phil and they're trying to treat, uh, treat that condition. And I, I don't know. I just feel 
maybe we keep playing the tape to the end, it'll make more sense. But to me, this seems counter to what Phil was saying because Michelle was saying that she could acclimate ah. to the place and she can get better with time and exposure. But really, no, it's going to cause her actual pain. Yeah, it is interesting. It's like her own way of acclimating, right? She's not doing the parka and boots, which is recommended by the anonymous donor, you know, the townsfolk of Sicily, the idea that it's like, you can be more like us. She wants to do it her own way, but that is what gets her frostbite. And the end of the episode is her sort of celebrating independence in a way. I don't know. Well, let's let's play the tape out, as you said, because I think we can probably make some uh, over- overarching statements, big picture statements, once we get to that final scene out there. Um, but what is happening here? Um, I, I think it's in the same scene with... Um, Phil and Michelle, uh, where, where he's treating her frostbite, they're kind of, he's like soaking her feet in warm water, I guess, and she's wrapped in a blanket. And he tells her that we've ruined our lives. I want to play the soundbite because it's, uh, I think it's a pretty funny quote here. No, we have gone down the rabbit hole, Michelle, and look where we ended up, in a place where moose copulate with cars, a place where people just drop the U.S. mail out of airplanes, a place where log tossing is considered high culture. We have gone down the rabbit hole. There's no way out. It's pretty funny because uh, we forgot to mention that the the mail dropping out of an airplane, that actually happened earlier in the episode. Michelle was asking about uh, if there was any new mail, and Ruth Ann said that the... uh, who was it? Red, I think is his name. Uh, the, the Red Murphy mm-hmm. had to jettison his cargo because his plane was like the wings froze and it was going down. So he had to <laughs> dump all the mail so that he wouldn't crash. <laughs> yeah, I love that quote there. Um, the way it ends is Phil says, I didn't think about this until now that we're talking about the episode, but Phil says, uh, you know, we have gone down the rabbit hole and there's no way out. So acceptance of being... Uh, being trapped here, like, you know, knowing the things that you can change, what you can change, what you can't change. Uh, There's no way out of the rabbit hole. I don't know if that's him just uh, saying that in desperation or if it's a statement about something that that there's no other option they have to to suffer here. I don't know. Right. And this is where it goes even more extreme in that direction, where Phil literally tries to take control of the direction of his life. He starts taking apart the sinks and the cabinets in an attempt to remodel the place while Michelle's resting on the couch. And that's like a mission to him that like, he says like, if we have to be here, then I'm at least going to shape it to our design. I'm going to make it more hospitable for us to live in. And uh, again, that's more toward the theme of saying like, I'm not going to take this sitting down. I'm going mm-hmm. to rebel. I'm going to fight back, which I, I don't know. I, I get I mixed phones on this, but that's not the point yeah. of what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to say is like the, the important thing is that Ed comes in and he drops off. Well, actually I do want to kind of talk about that. Maybe it is about learning a balance of the two sort of like, Uh, taking control of your situation, you know, what can you control and what do you accept? Like the, the cheesy quote on the greeting cards, you can't just like sit back and let it all happen to you, but you also can't just start tearing the kitchen apart. There are certain battles and certain aspects of 
fitting into the town, you know, but also having your own fashion and your own style. It's again, I'm quoting the the final scene with them, which we'll get to, but I think it's kind of playing into that. So maybe maybe it is about understanding what you should and shouldn't fight for. Oh, I get what you mean then. So like this kind of makes more sense now that you laid it out like that for me because Phil is saying that like, okay, this is something in which I can fight for, remodeling my kitchen. I can do this. And mm-hmm. the other things that he can't fight, like the entire town of Sicily, I have to assimilate into there. So he has to put on the Founder's Day outfit and join them. So that's the one in which he has to accept. It's like about finding that balance. I think he's going like too far in one direction by tearing apart his whole kitchen and his bathroom. Uh, he's he's re- he's having like a, a a reaction, a strong reaction to uh to not wanting to assimilate. Uh, it's, you gotta, I guess he needs to be somewhere closer to the middle there. But go ahead. What happens next in this scene? Because we're we're still in here. Yeah, and I talked about it just now about the Founder's Day, but. Ed comes in with a box full of Founder's Day outfits. He figured that Michelle and Phil had a rough week, so he wanted to help cheer them up by bringing them some outfits that he found in Ruthann's basement. And Michelle tells him that, no, I don't think we're going to be participating in that parade. But Ed says, you know, it's fine. I'll just leave it here, and if you guys feel up for it, you can go out to the parade. Yeah, and the clothes he brings by, he brings it by in the same kind of cardboard box that Michelle found on the porch, you know, the one with the parka and the boots. I was like, okay, Ed Ed was the gift giver, right? But I like that it's never really addressed or Ed doesn't say, yeah, I mean, I brought you the parka and the boots before. Um, I like thinking of it as this sort of anonymous, amorphous idea of just like the town giving it to Michelle, Mm. not just like one person, because it is about ultimately, as we're talking about Charles, it's about Phil and Michelle fitting in with the town, like the people, the place, the whole shebang. We don't ever figure out that it's one particular person who left that box. Even though Michelle says that they aren't going to go to the Founders Day parade, at the end of the scene, she's like auditioning a dress. She's like holding it up, looking at it, while we hear Phil clamoring away in the background with his remodeling. Um, And the next time we return to them, Michelle is doing her hair, her makeup, lipstick, and Phil is still working, but she announces that they are going to go to the Founders Day Parade. And I got a soundbite here. Um, I like what she has to say about lipstick. So I start with this little quote here that she, uh, as, as she's like applying her makeup, She's talking about that. But uh, I don't know. This might be sort of a longer bite. I'm just going to sort of play out a bit of this scene, uh, and we can talk about it, Charles. Hand me my lipstick, will you? Michelle, I have absolutely no desire to participate in anything that celebrates this gulag. You know, my mother used to say that it's too bad that men don't get to wear lipstick. No matter how bad things got, you put on your lipstick, feel better, and face the world. Do you know that when the Titanic was sinking, women went to their staterooms and did their lips? What is this about, Michelle? Okay, Sicily is not the pastoral Shangri-La that we expected. It's, um, it's, I, I don't know what it is, but, but we're here. And we're not going anywhere. We're going to make the best of it. Right. Come here and sit down, please. This isn't capitulation. We can still be who we are. See, I've been thinking a lot about that sock. What sock? Rosalind's. 
Here was this, this strong-willed, independent woman who cared so much about her personal appearance that everything else be damned, she was going to have a matching pair of socks. And what was born out of this, this independence, this attention to detail? A town, Phil. A, a town. Rosalind's story made me see that if you have courage and you maintain your essence, your sense of fashion, nothing gets the best of you. Michelle, my problem goes a lot deeper than a lack of accessories. Maybe, yeah. But you're not alone. Yeah, me. We're going out there and face this place together. Yeah, so what Michelle was saying is essentially the same thing that Phil was saying, just with slightly different words right there. Mm -hmm. And the thing that troubles me about this, though, is that Phil then counters and says, like, no, I don't think the problem with me is that, like, I'm lacking accessories. And then Michelle wraps it around with the thesis statement of the other plot lines. Well, mainly mm -hmm. the one with Shelly and Hollings, which is that you, you can face the trouble as long as you have someone with you. Yeah. Chris and Maggie, too, sort of has that idea. And that's what she's trying to reach for. But the way that she reaches for it disregards the other stuff that they're going through. And I, I wish they would have hammered this home a little bit better. Maybe I'm just speaking out of line here, but I, I think that's what troubles me about this plot line. No, yeah. I mean, I like the sentiments here, but it's kind of, it doesn't add up for me fully. I like the idea. You have to have courage. You have to maintain your own essence. You have to be independent. This is like to, to, um, to Michelle, this is what she's learned about the lore of Sicily. That's what it's taught her. Like it's about being yourself, asserting yourself and facing, um, facing wilderness in the unknown, um, but being strong in your own beliefs. But uh, I don't know. All the things that we were just talking about, it seems like you kind of want to have a little bit of, of both because they, they are going to assimilate. We're going to go to that Founders Day. You know, we're going to join Sicilian society, but we're also going to find a way to be our own. I don't know. It seems like... Um, it's straddling a lot of ideas here in this like closing monologue. And then again, the very ending of it is not, as you're saying, the idea that it's like, we're going to face it together. That seems to be something that's more concerned with Chris and Maggie, the, the themes of that plot line. It's just trying to wrap everything together in the ending here, where the, the only problem I have with that is like, I don't fully understand what the message of the Phil and Michelle, like where, what did they learn? Where did they leave off? I guess they just, yeah. I mean, they're just like, they're going to, they're going to be themselves, but that also gives you frostbite. I don't know. Sorry. I'm so confused. Right. There's a lot of <laughs> conflicting ideas that are going on here. And it, ultimately what they're, what it seems like what they're trying to tell me is that like, well, as long as you have somebody that's looking out for you, then you can trouble any storm, which is a lovely sentiment, but it, I don't feel like that was being demonstrated a whole lot for this episode between the two right. of them. It's See, like their, their battle. Line, yeah. Yeah. Their battle was mostly against sicily and the town yeah uh but in a way that's uh basically the last <laughs> scene for them because now we get to the very end where they come out of their car and phil's got the wheelchair for her and he carries her to the wheelchair and they join sicily's founders day yeah and you know it's, it all works out with them in the end they are happy to join in it's the right thing to do i think maybe the the issue that it feels like the themes and the ideas of their plot line seem muddled or it's like 
this way and that way, going, going back and forth. Maybe the idea is that by doing all that, it shows that it's not one or the other. It's like some sort of balance of the two. That's what I keep coming to with this plot line. It's like finding that balance, but it seems like their opinions change uh, a lot. I don't know. They're kind of back and forth on a lot of things. So maybe that's the whole point that they're, the writers are trying to get at is that it it's not this way or that. It's like an in-between. But it just, to me, was confusing. Even talking about it now, I'm kind of confused of what is happening. But uh, all's well that ends well, because as I, as we just said, they have a wonderful time at the, uh, at the Founders Day Parade. Okay, Charles, well, before we go back and look at our next plot line in the episode, I just want to bring up the title of this episode one more time, Lucky People. And I, I don't find it fitting with this plot line. So sending a call out to the listener right now, if you're listening and you're like yelling at your phone, yelling in your car, yelling at us, idiots, this is what it means. Please write us right now, uh, northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, probably being a big dum-dum right now. So just let me know what, uh, what does the title mean to you? Maybe, maybe if you don't even know, like what, what did you, uh, take it to mean? Um, but we still got two more plot lines, Charles. So maybe we'll find a connection or maybe it'll dawn on us and we'll figure it out. So the next one I want to talk about, let's go into, um, Maurice and Shelley and Holling and Miranda and that whole soup there, because I think Chris and Maggie, we can save for the end. That's a pretty short one. So... Maurice starts this episode by saying this is going to be his 28th Founders Day in Sicily. So he's been here for, you know, that 28, 29 years, something like that. Um, Holling is decorating the nursery now. Again, it's like kind of like a new beginning, you know, kind of re readjusting things. And Maurice is just kind of hanging out with them. Miranda is playing with her blocks. This is what you had mentioned before, Charles, where she keeps building her block tower knocking it down. And he remarks that kids are always like that. But there's something special about Miranda here. You know, Maurice is never, usually never interested in children, but uh, Miranda tugs on his ear and we can see a, a, this sort of like new light in Maurice's eyes. And he's recognizing something. Maybe he's like, oh, I finally like children. Or maybe it's something else as we'll come to find out. <laughs> um, but yeah. Any, any notes you have on this uh, this first scene here? Yeah, I thought it was really funny that Maurice says, you know, if I had a child, I would want him to be a boy. I would yeah. want him to be a boy, and I would want him to be about 10 or 11, <laughs> like hunting age. There is a, there's a great bit from uh, Bill Burr that says, you know, I really should adopt. I think it's a great thing to do, and I already <laughs> know what I want to get. I do. I want to get like an 07, 08 model, like always garage, good dentition. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like that same type of vibe that Maurice is bringing to the table about, you know, yeah. what type of child he would like. It's like if I had a kid, it would just like start at nine or 10 years old. Like I wouldn't have any of the other stuff. That's pretty great. I mean, hey, throw it back to season one, a Kodiak moment where he adopts Chris, who's probably you know, 20, you know, late twenties or something. He, he does have a, the first, um, you know, like son that he has in this series is a grown man, Chris. Later he, uh, he learns that he's the father to, uh, Du Quan, who's a grown man himself. So it just seems fitting with Maurice. He wants, <laughs> he just doesn't want babies, you know, never interested in that. <laughs> All right. Well, the next scene, Maurice actually wants to visit with Miranda. 
go back on everything we just learned. He explains to Shelley and Holling that Miranda loves to keep tugging on his ear. And it reminded him, he just had this like, uh, what would you call that? That's the uh, Proustian recall, you know? <laughs> uh, it reminded him of his uncle Elvie, who used to pull his ear just this, exactly the same way that Miranda does. I think we learned later in the episode, there's like a look in her eyes that also reminds him of his uncle Elvie. And uh, this this person obviously had a had a huge impact on Maurice's life. So feeling that again, seeing that again, he thinks it's reincarnation. Really crazy plotline right here. Because I thought they were actually going to go <laughs> in this direction. Like I thought they were actually going to talk about true. it. Yeah, that it like, was true? Oh, like, yeah. It was like, yeah. So crazy right here. But uh, as we'll soon find out, that's, you know, that's not actually the case. Well, you know, we could, ex- we could expect that from Northern Exposure to go to go a little kooky. I kind of thought that too, rewatching this. Right. But before we get to that scene, we have another moment of Maurice trying to spoil little baby Miranda. He shows up to Holling and Shelley's door and showers them with gifts. Says that he's got some stuff from uh, FAO Shorts, like a large little plush dog. And he's got like Barbie dolls that are designed by Bob Mackey. And I didn't know who those two were. So I looked into it. And I guess it's just like showing her age because apparently FAO Schwartz was probably something you knew if you were watching Northern Exposure as it aired. It is one of the oldest toy stores in the United States. It opened in 1862 in Baltimore for going to New York City. And they're really famous for kind of redefining like the toy game to some sense. Like, are you familiar with that giant piano, the dance on piano in the Tom Hanks film Big? That is from FAO Schwartz. Yeah, I was gonna say I thought I had uh, I thought I had only heard of FAO Schwartz in the movies. Like we never had one in Louisiana where we grew up. But I remember when you said that, and if I had to search my memory bank, I thought of Big, specifically that uh, Toy Story scene. Right. So they're really known for that. They're still kicking around, apparently. Like it's it's All right. still here. Yeah, good for them. And Bob Mackey is an American fashion designer and costumer, and He has done so many outfits for so many people, uh, just rattling it off of Wikipedia. He's done outfits for Lucille Ball, Carol Burnett, Carol Shanning, Cher, Bette Midler, Doris Day, Marlene Dietrich, Barbara Eden, Lola Falana, Farrah Fawcett, Judy Garland, and so many, so many more. But the most important thing, though, for this scene is that Bob Mackey is actually designed for Barbie. It's actually one of the biggest sells for her. That's what propelled her into stardom was Bob Mackey's design for the dolls. Oh, wait. So it wasn't just this specific doll that he has, but Bob Mackey did a lot of designs for 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 Barbie, like the Barbie line. Is that right? Yeah. So reading from this article from uh, Hollywood Reporter, he initially didn't think she was very fashionable, he says, of the doll, which originally just had a very simple black and white chevron swimsuit, hoop earrings, and a perky blonde ponytail. So he decided to transform it, give it a little bit more pizzazz, and bam, that's how the Barbie doll came to life. Have you seen uh, Have you seen the movie? No, I won to, though. Did you see it? Yeah, good movie. I, I definitely recommend it. You got to check it out. Uh, but anyway, okay. So Holling is obviously a little put off by this. Shelly loves all these presents and all this, because it's all this great stuff she can give Miranda and make Miranda's life better by having all these gifts and presents and just fancy things. Um, but Holling maybe feels a little intimidated by it or just kind of 
just doesn't feel right to take all these gifts. But Maurice says, talking about reincarnation, he says, now I wouldn't stake my life on it, but humor me on this, please. Like, just let me, I would just want this, I want this connection to my Uncle Elvie. Because Maurice brings up, Uncle Elvie taught him how to read. Just this, probably, you know, that's, we don't know too much about Uncle Elvie, but I can only imagine he has this like immense positive influence on Maurice's life. So yeah, I mean, it's it's serious here for Maurice. <laughs> yeah, and that's what like brought more credence to the theory that it could actually be real. Because, you know, there's like a sentimental value attached to him between him and his uncle. So I was like, I was mm. on board with it. Uh, and now we get to a little bit more of the overpushing as some Maurice, which is that <laughs> he's actually bought stock for baby Miranda. About $10,000 mm-hmm. worth. And the broker actually shows up to their place to discuss her portfolio. Now, was it just me, Lee, or does this scene look a little bit strange? I don't know if it's like our Blu-ray quality or what, but I don't know. There's something off with the lighting on this. Yeah. Let me go back and rewatch it. I think I know what you're talking about. Maybe. Or just looks a little different. Let me watch it real fast. Okay. Yeah, this looks like... We've kind of described this before on the podcast, probably not super interesting to hear, but on our Blu-ray copies, sometimes the quality of a shot, specifically special effects shots, will uh, not be, it won't be like HD. It's basically video. And so the reasoning behind this, I've guessed, is because um, anytime they would have to do special effects on the show, they wouldn't do the special effects and then print it onto film to project. You know, this is going onto TV. So they do the special effects in some sort of video format, and then that just goes to broadcast. So the highest quality archive of those special effects shots would only exist uh, in like video. Like they never were, I'm assuming most of these Blu-rays were transferred from the original film, which, you know, would give us a higher quality than the standard definition broadcast you know, video format that we would see on TV. Now, actually watching this scene, there is one shot, it's a single on hauling that looks like it's high definition, like 1080. The rest of the scene looks um, like it's video, like lower quality. Is that kind of what you're sensing? Yeah. it's just kind of like lower quality of that scene? Yeah. In fact, I thought, I straight up thought that this was like a dream sequence. Because of how off the lighting was. I was like, oh, okay. So like the person that's at the door is like the devil or something. It really changes the format and looks strange. And again, like that, I can can understand my explanation that I just gave for any sort of um, visual effect that would be done digitally or just like done after the film was shot. Sometimes we've also noticed when they crop in certain shots, uh, if they had to do a special effect, you know, that's going to also be lower quality. It's like if you went back to the original film, it, it would, wouldn't be cropped in. It would be like a wider, it would, it would look like a different shot. For this, I don't know. Maybe the original film got damaged for, for much of this scene. That could be a possibility. Mm. Um, I really don't know. Yeah, because it doesn't, there's no special that I can tell. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. It could be something as silly as like they had to paint out like a a logo or something or they had to crop out a, light stand. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that is funny though, that it does, when you're watching it and the quality changes, it could give it a different 
feeling subconsciously of like, is this a dream? Like, what's going on? Yeah. And the only other shot other than Holling that you pointed out is Baby Miranda. I think that one's in 1080. Mm. But those are like, yeah. that makes a whole lot of sense because they're shot as singles. Yeah. So maybe the wider shots, they had to crop in something. Right. Interesting. That, that Yeah. Uh, well, there's something that happens at the very beginning of the scene that I do just want to point out. Holling has carved a uh, rabbit, like out of wood, a toy for Miranda. You know, I guess like he feels a little inadequate that he can't give as opulent a gift that Maurice is giving, all these gifts that he's giving to um Miranda. So he wants to offer his own, you know, rabbit. Uh, he's like, uh, Miranda's playing with some toy and Shelly says, oh, she really loves that thing. And Holling's like, oh, it's makes too much noise and it the lights blink too much. She's going to get tired of that eventually. Now here, play with this, this <laughs> wooden sculpture of a rabbit. Um, so he's like competing with Maurice in his own way. And then, yes, of course, the broker, this man comes in, $10,000 worth of stock. Um, I can't remember how this scene ends here, but obviously Holling's not taking it very well. Right. And the next thing that we see of Holling is in Maurice's office. He's actually ambushes him in his office. <laughs> he steps inside. He sees Holling in the corner. He brought back all the gifts, including the giant dogs and, you know, the mm-hmm. all the other little toys. And Holling has now figured out Maurice's game, which is that he's trying to buy his way into the family. He's trying to just use his immense wealth in order to make Randy, you know, like him through artificial means. And Holling doesn't accept that. And Maurice kind of tries to counter and say, like, well, has Shelly heard about this? Because it looks like she likes it. And then Holling says, yeah, well, that's because she can't see ulterior motives. She's too fair. She's going to read everything Mm -hmm. at face value. And that really caught my eye, the idea of ulterior motives, because I thought that that was something they were going to explore in Michelle's plotline, which is like the ulterior motive Uh of giving her the gifts. Right. But they never actually went in that direction. That's true. Because there are, as we said before, there are gift giving in both this and the plot line with, uh, with Phil and Michelle. So yeah, that would have been an interesting little tie-in. Uh, when I first saw this scene, I was still under the belief that Maurice is like not necessarily trying to buy his way into this family. Like he really like wants to make, like you're saying, it's like, I believed that they might've gone into the reincarnation thing actually, like (laughs) might've been played with a little further, but by the end of the episode, I think we all understand and Maurice included, it is shaped to show that Maurice is, you know, maybe he didn't understand it, but subconsciously what he was actually doing is just trying to, find a family, like trying to buy his way into, into family, which is kind of sad, but it's true. Maurice doesn't really have a family, not anywhere near, you know, we mentioned Duquan earlier. Um, so he has a son, but he's not really involved in any sort of family life. Maybe he's taking it a little too far too, you know? <laughs> right. And that's hammered home in the next scene with Maurice where he steps under Ruth Ann's door uh, in the pretense of trying to buy, oh gosh, what was it? English toffee? Yeah, English, it was English, English toffee. toffee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, but in reality, he's just trying to spy on the brick and wants to know what they're up to. And Ruthann calls him out and says that you know people can see what you're doing. You just want to buy your way into being a member of their family. But I don't blame you. Most people want a family. They want that acceptance. And that's where Ruthann comes in and gives you know, the most generous gift that she can, the 
you know, the closest thing to family there is, which is friends. She offers Maurice to come have a late supper with her and Walt. Yeah, which is nice, you know, because it kind of feels like for a moment that uh, that Ruth Ann's really digging into Maurice. She she tells him in this scene, you're a lonely man with a lot of regrets. Of course, you're like trying to buy your way into a family. Um, so, yeah, I again, I was like... I was like, whatever. I think I think reincarnation is actually real. That's what they're talking about. But no, this is this is the scene when Maurice is uh, is maybe realizing it to himself. He's like, uh, you know, I probably am going a little too far with that, and maybe there is something something deep down inside me that really uh, really wishes I could have that. And so it is very a very nice turn from Ruth Ann, as you said, um, for her to invite. Maurice to to have dinner there. I forgot to mention in the last scene, it's not that important, but there is one other deleted scene in this episode in which Shelly is picking out some clothes for Miranda to wear to Founder's Day. And uh, Holling is further intimidated by the price tag on all of the clothes. And Shelly hands Holling a, a sack of old clothes to throw out into like the rummage sale. Mm. So, um... Yeah, but I was just thinking because of the last scene where we talked about where Hollings returning all of the uh, all the gifts that Maurice gave. Like if they kept that deleted scene in, Miranda just wouldn't have any clothes because they got rid of all the old clothes <laughs> and Hollings uh, returning all the gift clothes. Um, so yeah, it doesn't really make too much sense, I guess, to keep that deleted scene in. Uh, but yeah, so Maurice has heard it from Ruthann. That's the uh, is that the end of the plot line? No, no, no. They have one them more. The, they they do show up at the uh, the Founders Day, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, he Maurice finds Holling and Shelley there, and you know it's a little maybe there's still some tension, some uncomfortableness between Holling and Maurice. But Maurice just kind of comes out and says, you know, the other day in the brick, I saw Miranda rocking out, dancing to the jukebox. It was a song by Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire. And you know, my Uncle Elvie, he was a staunch Southern Baptist, and he was very much anti-rock and roll. So obviously, there's no connection between my uncle and your daughter. I must have made a mistake. Enjoy the parade. So yeah, it's like his kind of uh, surrendering to Holling and Shelley, backing off a bit. Uh, I don't know. Still, when I saw this, I was like, I think Maurice made that up. I think uh, he still believes that. <laughs> no, I, I know that's not the truth. I was I was still wanting to believe that there's like a reincarnation angle. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you think he just made that up to make them feel better? Uh, the story about her dancing? Or is it true, maybe? I, I want to say that we're led to believe that it's true coming from yeah. here because they're trying <laughs> to make... It makes sense. Yeah, because they're trying to make a big statement from Ruthann's thing and that like he's trying to... It's true. He's trying to buy his way into the family. Uh, it's, you know, it's okay. Like, I, I get the angle that they're trying to get at. Ultimately kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimately kind of sad. <laughs> kind of tragic Absolutely. for Maurice. Like, it's not a happy ending. Yeah. And, uh. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go, go yeah, ahead. no, no, no. I think that's about it for them. And it, like we talked about in Phil and Michelle's plotline, we know that Holling and Shelley can weather the storm this Founder's Day with each other and their family with Randy. But. Maurice doesn't have anybody. Just has Ruth Ann. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think I, I sort of, I've somewhat enjoyed this plot line. It 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 didn't uh I don't know how memorable it will be whenever I'm trying to rank all the episodes in season six, 
will I even remember that this happened? It's, it doesn't stand out too much, but it sort of ticks the marks, like ticks the boxes for uh, Northern Exposure because we have reincarnation, sort of this weird, kooky, spiritual, metaphysical element, uh, but it doesn't really stick the landing there. It's just a sort of a, a, a red herring of what's going on. And it talks about, um, yeah, some pretty tricky um, social situations, you know, when like your best friend is maybe going a little too far, you know, it's like, how do you, you don't want to not be friends, but it's also like, it's not, you know, it's, it's your family. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a tricky situation. And ultimately, as you said, Charles is a little sad for Maurice. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he gets out of it other than uh, maybe hanging out with uh, Ruthann and Waltmore, which I like that. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We get to the final plot, yes. which is involving Maggie and Chris. And we begin with them coming upon this old locked cabin or warehouse of sorts. Yeah. And inside it is this Ford Model T that used to belong to the founders of Sicily. It's what they wrote in on. And what I found really interesting on this scene is that the door to this warehouse is locked. And the way, only way you can get inside is to break the lock. And Chris makes it a point to say to Maggie that, hey, I can do this. I can break the lock. I used to be like this in my past life, mm. which is kind of like going back to that theme. The theme of like starting new, like this past life and doing right. something new. Like cause he's going to break the lock, but it's in order to fix the car. You know, like he he ended up, uh, I want to say, actually, I can't remember with, with his love of like Harleys. Did that come up in the joint, like in prison? Or afterwards, maybe before. But I do like, regardless, I do like that they employ his skill, like his utility as a lockpick. I wish that they had kind of done more, like made, exploited that more, the the criminal past of Chris. I mean, it definitely, that's mentioned a lot throughout all the series. I just mean like the skills he might have garnered, you know, from that. We do see, I think if I think about that, um episode spring break in season two, someone is mysteriously uh, stealing appliances, electronics and things. And Ed is the detective on the case. And he figures out by the end that it is Chris. So yeah, I mean, we do see some of that. I can think of a couple episodes. Um, yeah, I think maybe I should just say that I, I do like that he's he's got that utility of breaking in the lock pretty easily. They get inside the shed. I think there's also a line that they're like, oh, I never saw this shed out here before. Like, or it's like, you know, I never came around here. I would say, I think this shed reminds me a lot of earlier in the season when Chris is doing a lot of um, experiments with electricity. Pretty sure that's the same set. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be different, but you know, there may, might be reusing a similar set. Um, regardless, this is supposed to be in the, uh, canon of this episode. This is a unique shed. They find it and this old Model T, as you mentioned. The next scene we get with them, they're working on the Model T. They're going to restore this car um, for Founders Day. You know, it does make it, it does make an appearance at the end there. And um, I don't know the like the text in the scene very much, other than Chris basically asking Maggie if uh She's seeing anybody. He's seeing anybody is what he says. We get a, we get a sort of sense of a chemistry between Maggie and Chris, just the way they smile at each other. And Chris talks about uh, the car, uh, you know, his very Chrisism. He's like, you know, this car puts the whole male-female dynamic, the whole male-female thing into perspective is what he says. 
the long journey that that Sicily and Rosalind took in this machine, they did it without men. You know, he's kind of relating Maggie's like, I'm not seeing anybody right now after Joel. Oh, so they do mention Joel, but they don't, you know, they mentioned Joel in the past in this episode. She says after Joel, after Fleischman, she's kind of given up on the whole male-female thing for the time being. Yeah, and Chris kind of makes it a point to say like, you know, they had each other mm-hmm. and they didn't need any men. It was just those two. And they could take their car oh, 2,000 miles down the road and make it to Sicily. As long as those two women were together, they could handle anything. But then... He kind of walks back that statement in the very next scene with them. When I say very next, it's actually like 17 minutes into the episode later. But the next time we see them, Chris makes it a point to tell Maggie that like, you know, there's a amendment to that, to what I mentioned. It's not necessarily that they were women. It's that they had each other. That was the important thing. People need another person behind their back in order to weather through life. Yeah, they finish uh, repairing the car in this scene, and they're going to try to start it up. And uh, that's before, you know, as they're getting ready to, like, Maggie's going to do the honors, Chris is like, yeah, you know, they didn't need men. They had each other. They had a significant other. And he says something like, you know, I've been thinking about this all along. I don't think we're supposed to fly solo. And Maggie looks at him, and she smiles at this. And she starts the car, seems to turn on, it's turning over, and uh, it's coming alive. Um, so yeah, I mean, no major advances on the romance front, but they're setting the stage here. Chris is looking for a partner. Maggie is single and, um, she's smiling. Maybe, maybe she's considering it. Yeah. And they really hammered this home at the very last scene. Of oh yeah, I do. These I two, like this. Go ahead. Them. Go ahead. Yeah. You like this? Do you hate it? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I don't, I don't hate it. Okay. I'm just saying, uh. <laughs> No, 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 I don't, I don't hate it. Uh, to bring context into it, yeah. it's the last scene involving them, pretty much the last scene in the entire episode, where Maggie is sitting in the car. They, the reason they were booting it up is because they wanted to use it for the Founder's Day Parade. And Maggie asks where Shelly is because she's supposed to be her Sicily. Right. That was how they were going to ride into the parade with mm-hmm. two women. And she asks Eugene, and Eugene says, ah, I think she's with Hauling. I don't think that she can make it. So that leaves Maggie stranded until Chris comes up dressed as a woman. And, you know, further cements his point that, like, gender need not matter. It's uh, really the, the soul, who you want to be with. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. As I said, uh, you know, we get a little John Corbett drag. He's got... Uh, I want to say it's like a pink dress, maybe. And then he's got sort of like blush and eyeshadow, this sort of makeup, you know, overly done. But um, it's just, you know, it's lovely. Like Maggie needs someone. Chris uh, Chris is going to fill the role. It's a, it's a nice happy ending here, I think. Okay, Charles, you know what time it is. It's the point in our podcast where we bring on a guest to talk about today's episode. And now in season six here, Our whole idea is to bring on fans of Northern Exposure to talk about the final season, this episode, like what their thoughts are on the series overall, since we're kind of uh, coming to a close here. And our guest today is Jeff Inyert. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Jeff was a fan of the podcast and wrote into the email uh, saying that he was just like listening to the podcast while he was doing a rewatch. 
And we asked him if he'd like to be on the podcast. And if you're listening right now, uh, we do have a few episodes left in season six that we're still looking for guests. And we really would love to have you on the podcast if you love the show, if you have thoughts about the final season or specific thoughts about um, the episodes, we'd love to hear from you. But for this episode, we've got Jeff. So let's see what Jeff has to say about lucky people. Hello, fellow Northern Exposure Over Analyzers. This is Jeff Enyart from Northern Kentucky to share my take on the Northern Exposure Season 6 episode, Lucky People. A huge thank you to Charles and Lee for asking me to make this tape and more importantly for making the podcast and sharing it with all of us. It's been a lot of fun and I've been lucky enough to watch the episodes about in tandem with your podcast. So it's been a ton of fun. little context for me why I love Northern Exposure. I loved the Alaska scenes because I'm a Midwesterner and it was just so amazing to watch. I love the music theme itself. David Schwartz's music is something else as long as well as all the musicians. And uh, as a percussionist, I've been really spending so much time trying to find the elusive cricket sound that maybe I'll never find, but it's pretty awesome. Um, I love John Collum because I'd seen him in 1776 and the cast and ensemble is great. At some point, though, I stopped watching when the original series ran. And I went back and asked myself, why, why did I stop? And I think the answer for me was, I was a new dad. I had a child who was about one and a half years old. So there was no Northern exposure. There was no, no Seinfeld. There was no friends. I, I really just lost that whole decade, which is great. I had no problems. I, those shows can be fine where they are. Uh, the show itself got a little confusing. So it was easy for me at the time to, um, to let it go. But you kind of never let it go because this year I bought the box set of DVDs. They've been finally available, and I started watching them with my wife, who has never seen it before. A lot of fun. Okay, so on to um, season six and this episode. The first thing I might say is is that season six really doesn't seem like a demise season to me. Um, this, some of these episodes are quite good, and I I really like them. Um, I'm not sure this was an exception to that rule. Because uh, as I, I watched it the first time, I was like, wow, this really is kind of a sleeper, if you will. But then I took a second take on it. And um, let's start off with the, uh, the theme of it, lucky people. And I think my take on lucky people, I think, is a little zeitgeisty. I think it's from the uh, Barbara Streisand song, Lucky People. Um, all the themes kind of revolve around that. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Um, unlovers are very special people. And although the plot storylines say um, Maurice is looking at the resurrected Uncle LV and Miranda and Phil has this anxiety, I really see it as a different way of saying that people are reconnecting with one another and they're working through the world. There are friendships, relationships that are quite important in this. And this, uh, this episode tends to show that. So here's how I would do it. I would say um, Phil is a uh, clearly the new fish out of water. Founder's Day, if you will, um, is the water. The whole pounds people get together and, and they do this. Um, and so they find a way, Phil and Michelle find a way to become a little more out of the water uh, together. They're able to blend in and um, have a new start. I think the relationship with uh, Pauline and Maurice 
is really about their friendship because at the end, it isn't about Uncle Elvie and Miranda and all that. It's really about their friendship, which is uh, deep and abiding. And the same thing really goes with Chris and Maggie, who, of course, we're trying to see. Chris has even said how lonely he is. He doesn't think he should be walking around in the world in a lonely state. So um, my take is that that was really the gist of that show. And I, I think they did it well. That, that's basically what I have. And once again, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope to uh, enjoy the rest of the episodes. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. All right, that was Jeff with his thoughts on Lucky People right there. And to start right off the bat, Jeff mentions that he's a Midwesterner mm-hmm. who likes the Alaskan theme. I think we can relate as Southerners who uh, romanticize the um, sort of the setting of Northern Exposure, the snow, the mountains. Uh, I'm assuming that, you know, the Midwest is not, you know, very, uh, you know, geographically similar, or what would you say, like the habitat is not very similar to an Alaskan uh, Pacific Northwest. So it's it's easy to uh, fawn over those settings. Yeah, definitely. You can sense that like there's something something that you're really lacking in your place. So you're looking for in Sicily, Alaska right there. And talking about looking for something that you're you're missing. Jeff noted that he was looking for that cricket sound. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm like, is is that like a music thing? Like I, I was not too sure what he meant by that. So in the um in the Northern Exposure theme song, this is also something that Jeff emailed us about. But he's always he's a percussionist. He mentions in the sound clip here, uh, but he's always enjoyed the sounds in the Northern Exposure theme song. And there's one particular sound, which I don't remember if Jeff, if you had maybe considered it, it could maybe be castanets, but it's a, like a sort of a rattly like. Like sound, and you hear it at the very end of the theme song. You know, if you're listening to the theme song, you'll you'll definitely hear it. It's kind of a um, it kind of sounds like castanets, but it's almost like brighter, kind of high pitched, and it's like yeah. How do you describe that other than like a cricket? It's I think maybe uh, in our email I think maybe we discussed maybe it's like a guiro, which is sort of one of those um, I don't know how you describe it, but it, it makes sort of like that ratchety ratchet sound. Um, yeah, it's hard to describe, obviously, unless we played. Maybe if I can pull the sound effect, I would put it right here. I really don't know what that is. And we, I don't know, like, I guess I could bug David Schwartz and see if he would remember or know what we're talking about. But if we ever get in touch with David Schwartz again, uh, that'll be at the top of my list. And if anyone, uh, if anyone listening speaks with David Schwartz, please, for, for Jeff's sake, see if, uh, see if we can get the answer, what, what the sound effect could be. Speaking on music itself, he said that he was a big fan of John Collum from his work in 1776, the musical. I have actually not seen that musical before. Uh, I've heard great things about it. Mm -hmm. I am surprised that he uses John Collum's 1776 as his example because I think Mr. Collum is mostly known for Shenandoah. Mm. I think that's Mm -hmm. the one that he won the Tony from. Right. Yeah. We're kind of interested in both of these we've talked about before. Uh, I think it's really cool that John Cullum comes from like a theater and like a, um, I don't know if you call that Broadway, but like musical theater mm-hmm. um, background. Uh, he's got a great singing voice that he does employ in some moments uh, in in the series, but um, I think that's pretty interesting. And I guess, Charles, we probably talked about this already, but are there were there any stars of Northern Exposure when you first watched it that you you recognized from outside of Northern Exposure? Honestly, I don't... 
I don't even think I knew uh, John Corbett when I was first watching it, you know? No, no, I don't think so. I don't think I recognized any of them. Yeah, I mean, but they definitely, you know, Barry Corbin was uh, pretty pop, pretty successful, or I guess pretty successful before Northern Exposure. Obviously, John Cullum. John Cullum, yeah, we got, we definitely have to check out these uh, musicals. Uh, he mentions, Jeff mentions that he, uh, when he became a father, uh, he stopped watching the show, you know, basically like kind of stepped away from pop culture, I guess, for maybe a decade, he said. But he also mentioned, um, it was also kind of around the moment where for him, the show started to get sort of confusing. And I was thinking about that, like, I'm guessing at which point does Northern Exposure get bogged down or confusing? Probably season four with Mike Monroe, like that, th- that is when it really feels like it's starting to change. Um, that, that's my guess. Uh, but I don't know, Jeff. Yeah. If you can, re- if you can recall when you, uh, broke off, I'd be curious, but, um, glad to hear that you're kind of going through all the episodes now and revisiting. Yeah, I do sympathize with that. There is no convert like a zealot. So whenever you take a step <laughs> away from something and then, uh, especially for such a long period of time, like 10 years, and then you step back into it, you're like, okay, what did I miss? Yeah. And especially like, I think there's like a joke from like, I want to say it's from Bill Burr where he says that, yeah, parenthood is just like this bubble that you walk into. And like, that's the reason why like all the old people are befuddled by the changes in society is because mm. when you become a parent, like your, your attention is on your child or children. Yeah. And then you just focus on them entirely. And then for like, you're put into this bubble and then once 18 years go through, you push right out of the bubble and you're like, huh? What? Who? Like, what? Why are we saying this? Why can we not say this? Like, what's going on? That's amazing. Yeah. Um, hey, I think Jeff cracked the code here, um, figuring out what the title is. We were really confused. And obviously, I'm sure if you're listening, maybe you're screaming at us uh, because I, I don't know, maybe, maybe Jeff is incorrect, but I, I want to believe that that has to be where the title is taken from. The Barbra Streisand song, uh, it's called People. So obviously I typed in Lucky People song, you know, it's, it didn't come up as the title. But um, I looked into it a little bit. Uh, I think the song was written for the film or the musical, sorry, the musical Funny Girl. Are you familiar with Funny Girl? Yeah, that's a fairly famous musical. Mm-hmm. And the lyrics, like just the start of the song. Actually, I'm going to read like the first uh, stanza or so of the lyrics because I think they're all very applicable to the theme of this episode. And Jeff sort of quoted some of it. It's, um, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. We're children needing other children and yet letting a grown-up pride hide all the need inside. Acting more like children than children. Lovers are very special people. They're the luckiest people in the world with one person, one very special person. And Jeff goes on to just kind of connect all the stories and plots in this episode to the themes of that song. And I think it fits really well. I mean, obviously with um, Chris and Maggie, Chris telling her that he's he doesn't think he was meant to be alone. He needs a partner. And I like how he frames Maurice and Holling, their friendship, you know, like the the plot involving Maurice is kind of about this reincarnation and his uncle and family. And it's also in the end, it's kind of just about reconnecting and working through friendships and the the importance of all these connections. That is incredibly interesting that Barbara Streisand was in Funny Girl. I had no idea. I I honestly did not think (laughs) that she was still, that she gained relevance in 1964 and went on to do the uh, 
film adaptation of that. But yeah, uh, mm. I do believe that Jeff cracked the code on that, and I think that he <laughs> weaved it all in on all the plot lines I hear. And yeah, I think it all relates to the plot lines that Jeff is mentioning between Maurice and Holling and Maggie and Chris. How it's discussing how those two people need each other. Mm-hmm. That is gaining relevance to their luckiness right there. That is really, I want to say we did not touch on that at all. Yeah, like, for sure. In our analysis. Yeah, and I directly asked Jeff to give it a shot. Like, what do you think the title means? And I think he, del- yeah, I think he, I think he cracked the code. He delivered. And also, yeah, it does apply. You know, he was kind of connecting it as well to Phil and Michelle. You know, being together, facing Sicily together. You know, and and the last thing I do want to talk about quickly with Jeff's commentary is somewhere in there he mentions that this is not the worst season of TV, and it's not particularly like a bad season overall. It's there's uh, some. He says some of the episodes are quite good in season six. And um, Charles, I mean, we're recording this after we've seen even more episodes. Like we've we've started watching more episodes uh, deeper into the end of season six. And I think, at least so far, there are still some some good episodes even after Joel has left. So I, I tend to agree here. I think the um, I was really afraid of this uh, <laughs> of this portion of the series, but I'm pleasantly surprised. All right, that was Jeff with his thoughts for the episode, Lucky People. Next week, we're going to be looking at Season 6, Episode 17, The Graduate, which I can't really tell you what it's about because I've already seen it. Yeah, you've, you know, I can't, I can't ask you to guess about it. We've already watched it, as I sort of uh, revealed earlier. But I guess we can say, I think we both really liked this episode. So yeah. tune in next week. Uh, Charles, I'll see you then. All right, I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast was edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jeff for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.